Welcome to Episode 9 of Streams and Variations, the podcast where writing evolves. In this show, you will first hear a monologue based on a song prompt. That monologue has then been passed on to a songwriter who has written a song inspired by the monologue. That song is then passed on to a writer who writes a monologue based on the song, then to another songwriter, and so on. Like a game of broken telephone, each writer has only seen the work that immediately precedes their own. What elements of each piece will carry through? What recurring ideas and themes will we see? What changes will arise from the mind of each new artist? Let's find out. My name is Jamie Johnson. Writing is about the art of communication. In the words of Richard Peck, writing is communication, not self-expression. Nobody in this world wants to read your diary except your mother. Which brings up the question that pops into the mind of all artists. Who are you writing for? Communication is a two-way street, and the more specific a writer can be about who they are writing for, the better they are able to express ideas and thoughts and emotions. That specificity allows the work to become more understandable, the ideas more comprehensible, the thoughts relatable, the story breathes life. Like all of our writing streams, we've brought together the talents of six creators and placed them on very strict deadlines. Each piece you will hear was created over the course of one week, and these new creations became the basis for the pieces that follow them. Listen closely and try to find the threads that bind the stories together trying to see what each new creator brings to the process. See how the story evolves. The talkback for this stream, episode 9, will be released on July 12th. These talkbacks, discussions between myself, co-producer Sean Erker, and artists from the stream, give a look into the creative process. Listen in as we discover how these storytellers work, hear how our impression of these pieces change as we reveal what the artists see. These artists are an integral part of this storytelling experience. Their perceptions are what drive the process forward. Listen in as we find our way through the evolution of the story. Each full episode and talkback is available through our website, or you can subscribe through your preferred service so you don't miss any stories based on songs based on stories. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to tell people, your friends, or your enemies, or your mom, or your dad, your neighbor, the mysterious one you finally met, that isn't mysterious anymore. They might like it as well. This episode contains monologues written by Madeline Brown, Anthony McMahon, and Michael Ripley. These monologues are performed by Caroline Sawyer, Tim McLean, and Carl Bauer. And it contains songs written and performed by Sky Wallace, Ellis Meek, and Melanie Peterson. So sit back, listen intently, and let these artists carry you through this stream and its variations. Monologue 1 the music and the melody. Written by Madeline Brown. Performed by Caroline Sawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
It's Frank Ocean. It is. It's the one where he's saying something like, Come home to a full plate. <laughs> I swear those are the lyrics. They are! Yeah, Frank Ocean, you totally know it. And the melody, is, it's in my head. I just... I'm just trying to make it come out here of my mouth. It's all... I have no sense of melody. None. It's true. And I normally don't hum or anything, but I thought you were asleep and I felt... And don't get me wrong, I love music. I, I, I don't know if I said that last night. Not that we said much of anything last night. Uh, <clears throat> I grew up with music in the house. My dad blasting Sam Cooke in the kitchen cassette player. My mom, Mozart, on the car radio. <laughs> My sister, Metric, the Libertines, Evanes Evanescence. Jeez, I haven't thought of them in forever. <laughs> you know them, yeah? What was that one song that... Oh, fuck it. Even if I did remember, I couldn't sing it, right? Well, the point is, well, basically, music was my first love. My first unrequited love. <laughs> I soaked up all my family's music and then developed my own tastes, which were definitively Dido, anything Motown, except Tears of Clown, which reminded me of the Clash Bandicoot PlayStation game that I couldn't beat, and musicals. My first instrument was piano. I asked my mom if I could take lessons. She didn't even put that on me. I wanted that for myself. And it was all fine. But, well, I first became worried about the whole music thing when I was taught ear training. Although being taught something sounds like I mastered it, which I, I didn't. You know what ear training is, yeah? Uh, basically, you hear a tune and then play it back. Or a rhythm and you clap it back. It's very simple to start. <laughs> so I'd hear the tune. My teacher, Mrs. Eltstone, playing it. And it felt like it just whooshed over me. Like trying to catch a cloud of dust or pick out a single flame from a fire. It felt like like I'd briefly stopped listening in a conversation. Like I got distracted by something. Except in this case, I was listening. I was listening so hard. And then I'd have to play something back and I'd be guessing entirely. Miss Salson just smiled and told me to practice every week for, like, ten years she did that. And yet somehow that didn't make me stop. Middle school band. I played tuba, where suddenly, unlike the piano, even if I had the correct fingering, I had to hear the pitch in my head first and then make it with the shape of my mouth. With my embouchure. <laughs> and here the notes on the page in my head were chaos, or worse, silence. The conductor just smiled and told me to practice every week again for, like, years. Because after middle school band was high school band. And then, and then the high school musical. Finally, after years of drowning myself in Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Sondheim, never Lloyd Webber, even at 14 I was a snob, I could be in a musical. Acting. No problem. 
Even dancing, I felt fine about, but the idea of singing solo. I knew ahead of time, like the summer before the new school year, I'd be auditioning for Thoroughly Modern Millie. So whenever I was home alone, I'd replay the opening song over and over again. Um, what was it? Never mind. As I got to know the material, I was able to admit to myself I would never be the lead. But I could be the comic lead. Fast forward to September, I built up my confidence over the summer. I go into the audition, I do my monologue. Great, fine, wonderful. Dance call, great, fine, wonderful. And then I prepare to sing. I prepare to sing Happy Birthday. I wasn't even singing a real song, which was... Great, fine, wonderful. It was encouraged, even. The the teachers directing didn't want to freak students out. I'd heard happy birthday, like, four or more times a year since I was born. I should be fine. And I've sung it in groups just as many times. So, no big deal, right? I opened my mouth and... Well... I got a part. A comic part, even. But not the comic lead with two solo songs to herself. A comic part with, like, one solo singing line that I ended up just shouting. (laughs) Fuck, I wish I could just sing you the Frank Ocean song that got me on the tangent. You don't hate me, but it's, like, one of five songs I find incredibly romantic. I listened to it obsessively when I first heard it, just because of how it made me feel and how it made me imagine this person, this person who I was romantically involved with, an imaginary one. (laughs) And then I went and actually read the lyrics because that's another thing. I really struggle to hear like words in songs, but whatever. And it's a song about a breakup. It's weird because I just don't see or rather hear it that way. The song? Um, Although I know I say that and all this, uh, not because I want to break up with you, not that we're even dating, but because I think this is a good thing. (laughs) And I know we only just, and then I've just word vomited all over you this morning, aside from waking up with my singing, my horrible singing, but I... I like you. I really like you. I remember the song. I I remember the name of it. It's... Song 1. Unrequited. Written and performed by Sky Wallace. Will the music just come out of my mouth and get out of my head? Will I be strangled every time I try to dig in? Did I say I want to be left out or did I beg to be let in? Did my inaction cause a reaction to happen within? I was taught the ways of how to open up my mouth and ear. But being taught it doesn't mean that I mastered my fear.
And then there's you, a flame that I try to keep lit. And I'm trying not to fly too close to it. Can you make out most of my words when we're tangled up in bed? Do you struggle to hear the song that I sing in my head? I was taught the ways of how to open my heart and mind. Being taught it doesn't mean that I'm doing it right. Yeah, I'm always trying to get there first, but I'm always coming from a place of hurt. Is Monologue 2, Mastering Fears, written by Anthony McMahon, performed by Tim McLean. I felt her hair tangled up in the fibers of my socks this morning. I never thought I'd be the one to do it. I don't end things. I don't start them either. I always thought she'd leave me in the end. I felt the hair inside the sock curling around my big toe, cutting off the circulation. My toe fell off, then my foot is bleeding. The Dawn River is cascading with my blood. I'm drowning in it. I'm trying to spit it out. I'm miles away from home. I grab onto something. Now I'm floating on my rapidly decaying toe. I'm calling her. She won't pick up. Of course she won't. I've just broken up with her. That's why she left this bear trap of a ponytail in my sock. Did I mention the shoes? They're white. And my pants are white. And my shirt uh, is white. Of course it is. I'm an angel. Not anymore, though. I'm a tennis player on her period. Her final period. Her great period of Giza. There's not enough bleach in the world to make me clean again. I'll pour it on me anyways. Dissolve my flesh. It would be less agonizing than this. It would be faster. I pulled the hair out of the sock. It's so thin, it's invisible, and yet they're everywhere. My apartment is wall to wall and floor to ceiling carpeted in her hair. I vacuum every day, twice a day, the Dyson her parents bought. She didn't take it. Who doesn't take a Dyson? It was hers. I vacuum everywhere. And I think I get all of them, but then curled underneath my desk, or in my plans, or stuck in the window jam. 
I don't know why she sheds like that. She's like a Malamute. She's like a diseased horse. We had the same amount of hair, but I know it's hers because it smells like her and not like me. Little scented horse dog nose daggers. It's not funny. It's not funny to break up with someone. I know. We were in what everybody called a serious relationship. <laughs> An unfunny relationship. Breaking up isn't funny, it's breaking. It's undoing a whole part of your life. I mean, all the time you've spent together, you can't look back on it the same way. The beginning is recolored. You, you couldn't have been as happy as you were in those memories because if you were, it wouldn't have ended. You know that in every laugh, there was a brick that built the road to the end. And the end is just a new beginning, the beginning of unraveling everything else you built together. She says, keep the vacuum, as she leaves. That's just the start, though. Over the next few years, the world decides who keeps the which friends, who loses a job, who moves across town, who finds someone else. It stops being... It stops being an event. And it starts being a reality. I wanted her to break up with me. I wanted her to ask me to leave. I waited for it. I knew I deserved it. I knew I was too sarcastic or, or too depressed uh, and a bad lover. Oh, I hate that word. She used to say it to me and it just made me feel like I was bad. I, if I was any good, she would have used a phrase like uh, eagle. Oh, you're an eagle in bed. You know that. Don't you want to hear that? But she never said that. We never said anything of substance to each other. I waited for her to come home one day and tell me it was over. I waited for years. I would look at her on the couch when we were watching TV and think, why haven't you ended this yet? But she was never going to make the right choice. She was never going to tell me it was over, that we both knew it for so long. She must have been waiting for me to do it. We never talked about it, but we heard it in each other's breath on the couch at night, sitting together but apart. Go, go, go. Why did it take so long for me to do it when we both wanted it? Why couldn't we talk? How do people be in the world together? How do you trust someone you can't know? I'm afraid of my own mind. I've been afraid of it since I was young. How can I not be afraid of hers? I don't know it. I know it even less than my own. Her mind is like America to 12th century French peasants. It may as well not exist. I don't even know it's there. Everything I think I know about it could be proved wrong in a second. When I remember a movie we saw together or a book we read when we were young, separately, and we both mentioned liking it or her aunt serving her tea-soaked madeleines. Oh, I never saw that movie. I hated that book. We talked about how we hated it together. You're talking about Proust, not me. How come two brains can't connect? Ours never shared the same space. And how do you trust someone you don't know? I guess that's what trust is. Trust is a benevolent unknowing. If you know, then that's not trust, that's knowing. Uh, how's your day at work? Good, yours good, uh. We know nothing more about each other from that interaction. It's all trust. A million little extensions of trust a day. And it's 
Not that I distrusted her. I mean, she sawed my big toe off and left me to drown in my own blood, but I deserved that. That's a reasonable thing to do to someone who's broken your heart and stolen your vacuum. Or to come to think of it, to someone who's stolen your heart and broken your vacuum. Bloodletting and unconventional baptism follow naturally. But I didn't trust her. Because she didn't break up with me. Which is what someone I trust would have done. If trusting means believing they'll make the right choice when the time comes, I feel that the time came a thousand times and she never did it. I'm not justifying it to myself. It, it's justified by, uh, by having happened. The world will justify it for me. It will mete out the justice. I know that. If I was wrong, I'll be the one to lose the friends. I'll have to move to some other city. I'll, you know. They might not be fair. There's too many scales. There's too much to consider. But something will get weighed. Seeing the way you're looking at me now, right now, I, I'm thinking I'll probably lose you as a friend. If nothing else. And I knew that going in. <laughs> Maybe that's the part of why I hesitated. I thought it needed to be her to do it. Because she would have been right too, but also maybe I thought the world would go easier on me if she did. But when I put my sock on this morning, I felt that pain in my foot and I just thought, is it starting? Was I wrong? Song 2, Bloodletting, written and performed by Ellis Meek. Felt the snap like of a bear trap as I slipped into my socks. My big toe has become my raft and the red blood floods the dawn. This neurotic nervousness will surely never mix. This is exactly the kind of thing that I know I'll never miss.
Monologue 3, Butcher Block, written by Michael Ripley, performed by Carl Bauer. I'm an apprentice butcher, which basically means I'm the one who makes the sausage. I don't know who said it, that thing about knowing how sausage is made, and I understand they were talking about laws or whatever, but seriously, you legit don't want to know how we make them. I don't really date. There's a lot of reasons for that. My hands are cold all the time, I often have meat in my hair, and I'm in love with someone. Someone I don't technically know. We haven't really talked. He's said like nine words to me. 300 grams of black forest ham, debit and thanks. I think he might be a potter. Not sure why, just a feeling. And his eyes, they are so blue, deep, deep blue with these like lines radiating out as if someone laid a sapphire on a black anvil and smashed it with a hammer. And his smell? Trust me, when someone enters your sphere after you spent 30 minutes up to your elbows and entrails, you notice these things. He smells like baking. Which, now that I mention it, I'm questioning my Potter theory, but whatever. He smells like bread. When I was a kid, my house was next to a Safeway, and every morning when I walked to school, I was bathed in the smell of freshly baked bread. I suppose it's also worth mentioning Connor Manning regularly punched me in the stomach and stole my lunch money in that general area, but I don't want to go there. Anyway, I've tried, but I clam up whenever I go to speak to him. Talking to the guy is like standing in front of the class naked, only there's literal mountains of large tubular deli meats everywhere, reminding me how cold the room is. Once during the holidays, the place was full and Carrie was, yes, I know his name. He answered the phone once and was like, Carrie speaking, which is technically two more words, but they weren't directed at me, so. Anyway, it was busy. And he stood in front of me for like 10 minutes and I couldn't say a word. I almost did. But just as I was going to, Mrs. Goldfarb said the mortadella smelled off and I spent three minutes proving to her it was shipped the day before, which was a lie. It was off, turns out. But she died of a massive coronary a few days later, so karma. Meanwhile, I think he likes me. I'm not 100% sure, but when I passed him his order the other day, he made a point of looking me in the eye, like right in the eye, like... Reach, pause, eye contact, takes the meat. If someone is passing you kielbasa, you do not look them in the eye unless you mean it. So I've written a note. And the next time he comes in, I'm going to give it to him, like with the meat. Maybe not the smoothest move ever, but screw it. The talking thing is too hard right now. Here's the note. I think you're wonderful. If you're free sometime, I'd like to grab a coffee. Chris. Full disclosure, I've had the note for a few months now, but after that look, I gotta take a chance, right? Right? 
It's already weird. I'm a butcher. He's a potter slash baker. That's some next level Hallmark Channel. We need some new ideas, quality romance right there. Might as well lean into it. I'm going to wrap his ham with a love note. So that's salami. Did you want Genoa or Soprasada? Song 3, Corner of Your Street Written and performed by Melanie Peterson Oh, <laughs> 
Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Madeline Brown, Anthony McMahon, Michael Ripley, Sky Wallace, Ellis Meek, and Melanie Peterson for creating pieces for this episode. And I'd like to thank Caroline Sawyer, Tim McLean, and Carl Bauer for their performances. For more information about our artists, visit our website at streamsandvariations.com. And if you like what you heard, give us a shout-out. We'd love to have more people listening. You can find us at Streams and Variations on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at variationspod. Let us know what you think by dropping us a comment or questions by email at streamsandvariationspodcast at gmail.com. Our next episode is the ninth in our Talkback series, where the conversation with artists from this stream will be, as always, lively and compelling. This is the last of our writing streams for now. We'd like to know what you thought of this season and the work you've heard. Looking forward to it. Bye for now.